Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming. I'm Kurt Couchman, Manager of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, before we get started with today's program, I uh, wanted briefly to let you know about the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. It's our comprehensive guide to what the Cato Institute scholars think policymakers should do about a variety of issues, uh, from trade to foreign policy to energy and healthcare and everything in between. Uh, if you'd like a copy, please see me or Brandon Arnold in the back, and we'll uh, be sure to get you a copy. Um, we have today um, Dan Eikenson, who's the Associate Director of Cato Center for Trade Policy Studies. He'll be speaking first, and uh, then Congressman Coyar will speak, and uh, then we will go to some Q&A. So uh, let me introduce Dan, and away we'll go. Um, Dan's primary area of expertise include um, uh, world trade organization disputes, regional trade agreements, U.S. and China trade issues, steel and textile trade policies, and anti-dumping reform, among other things. He's been involved with uh, international trade since 1990. Before joining Cato in 2000, he was the director of an inter international trade planning. Um, he was director of international trade planning for an international accounting and business advisory for firm. Before that, he co-founded the Library of International Trade Resources, a consulting firm providing interactive information access and international trade consulting. And before that, he was uh, a trade policy and anti-dumping analyst at several international trade law practices in Washington. He's the author of a wide variety of studies and articles that are available at Cato.org or Freetrade.org, including the topic of today's event, uh, Audaciously Hopeful, How President Obama Can Help Restore the Pro-Trade Consensus. And uh, Dan Eikenson has a master's in economics from George Washington University. Dan. Thank you, Kurt, and thank you all for coming today, and thank you to the congressman for uh, for coming today to give his perspective. I think it's uh, I'm impressed by the fact that we can draw so many people to a, to a to an event where the topic is restoring the pro-trade consensus. Uh, just a few months ago, I think it would be very difficult for many people in this room to even fathom that we'd be talking about something like this. Um, there has been a lot of anti-trade rhetoric on the recent campaign trails. The, the current president on the campaign trail uh, more than implied that he was going to get uh, tough on our trade partners. Uh, so it's refreshing to see that, in fact, uh, there is uh, the possibility that we can restore the pro-trade consensus. Um, you've heard a change in rhetoric on, on Capitol Hill. You're going to hear some what I expect to be very promising commentary from Congressman Cuellar. And we've seen a sort of a change in the tack uh, from, the, from this administration. Things aren't really quite as bad as, as we expected they might be. Uh, we heard a few months ago that the, that the president was intent on telling the Chinese uh, uh, or doing something about alleged Chinese currency manipulation. Well, his Treasury Department, when it had an opportunity, uh, declined to label China as a currency manipulator. Uh, there were retractions about opening the, reopening the NAFTA uh, before the, the presidents of Mexico and the prime minister of, uh, of Canada. So the president has sort of Take, taken back uh, what he has said. He's had some very promising words on, on Buy American. Uh, the original language was uh, extremely provocative. Uh, the president came out and said, let's not do something protectionist. Let's, let's, let's honor our trade obligations. Lately, things have gotten a little bit a little dicey there, but uh, the point is, is that I think the president is interested in a, in a pro-trade agenda. And his, the new trade representative, uh, Ron Kirk, has articulated on several occasions a fairly 
decent pro-trade agenda uh, for, for this administration. And as we've also seen the president uh, disavow protectionism at the G20 and before other international fora uh, that, uh, that the United States is going to remain open for business. And, you know, at least protectionism, I think, is once again becoming a dirty word. And, and I think that's where we, where we, need, we need to start. Think, uh, think, things have changed and we need to move forward uh, from here. The paper that you might have picked up called uh, Audaciously Hopeful, Scott Linscombe and I wrote uh, last, last year, but it was finally published uh, uh, in, in April. And we make the point that the conventional wisdom that a Democratic president and a Democratic Congress mean bad things for trade, uh, we, we make, make the point that that's not necessarily right. Uh, we see uh, that the, an opportunity for this president uh, to articulate a, a case for open trade um, and we're, what we're trying to do is supply him. People are saying to the, about the president, wait a second, he, he said he was going to uh, impose uh, new barriers or, or, or challenge the Chinese or reopen NAFTA. Some people think perhaps he's flip-flopping. I don't think he's flip-flopping necessarily. Uh, I think that he has a case to make now that, you know what, I thought this is what I wanted to do, uh, but we've since reviewed trade agreements, we've reviewed the case for trade, and we think it's in uh, the U.S. interest to do so. So in our paper, we sort of supply him uh, with the rationale to, uh, to, to make that case for trade. The case for trade has never really been made effectively, in my view, in, in the national political discourse. We hear presidents and, and members of Congress talking about the benefits of exports, but we never hear them talking about the benefits of imports uh, or the moral case for free trade. Uh, and I think that this president can do that. So the thesis of our paper, uh, which was going to color my discussion here for the next 15 minutes or, or less now, uh, is that the bipartisan pro-trade consensus, which existed after World War II, collapsed during the Bush administration. Uh, we, view, we, we think that restoring that consensus is not just, not just the consensus among policymakers, but among the American public, should be a priority of the administration. Uh, because trade is crucial to the economy, and it's crucial to the prudent exercise of foreign policy, and protectionism, uh, as it so happens, is most punitive toward lower-income Americans. So restoring that consensus will require taking the, crit uh, the critics on head-on and explaining really what the benefits of trade are, what the costs of protectionism are, rather than just merely rationalizing the benefits, which has been the strategy, I think, uh, of the pol politically driven status quo. That's our paper in a nutshell. I hope you'll read it. But in case you don't, or just to give you a... Uh, uh, heads up ahead of time, I'm going to just summarize some of the, some of the facts. So what do we mean by the bipartisan pro-trade consensus? Well, US, U.S. and global trade liberalization is pretty well documented since the end of the Second World War, and it's paid uh, uh, substantial dividends. Throughout that period, th th there was bipartisan support for, for trade liberalization, uh, meaning support from both, both parties and, and uh, pretty much across the country. Uh, this held until the NAFTA vote in 1993. Uh, the year after the NAFTA vote, we had the Uruguay Round Agreements Act vote, which created the WTO, uh, which uh, liberalized trade considerably. And there was bipartisan support for that again. But throughout the 90s, we saw Democratic support starting to sort of tail off. Uh, President Clinton tried to get Trade Promotion Authority in 98, and he was turned down primarily uh, by, his, by his Democratic colleagues uh, in, in, in the House. In the 2000 election, I mean, sorry, in the PNTR, the, P the Permanent Normal Trade Relations vote for China in 2000, uh, 
was very was a, was a partisan vote for the most part, uh, numbers wise at least. But but since 2000, uh, since the Bush administration took office, there has been a a real uh, uh, partisan divide uh, over trade. Um, the <clears throat> so we uh, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, how do we how do we, how we got around that. We go into some details about how, why, why there was this collapse of, partisan, uh, of bipartisanship. Some people say, well, you know, it has a lot to do with the Democrats, Democratic Party's allegiance with uh, unions or with uh, environmental groups or other NGOs. That, that's part of the story, perhaps. Uh, there's another part of the story that, which says, well, maybe the Republican efforts to, uh, to, to push the trade agenda during the Bush administration with a Republican majority in Congress helped to marginalize Democrats. Uh, they said, we don't need Democratic support for these agreements. We're going to push it through. And the past few years, we've seen sort of comeuppance. Uh, Democrats were told by the leadership maybe not to vote in favor of trade agreements because the Republicans were pursuing a fairly partisan uh, tack. We discussed that a little bit in the paper. But let me just go on to explain why restoring the pro-trade consensus really should be an economic and diplomatic priority of, of the new administration. First of all, we, we know consumers need access to imported products. It helps uh, to extend family budgets. Producers require access to imported goods, uh, materials, components, capital equipment. In fact, 55% uh, of U.S. imports last year were made by U.S. producers, not consumers, but producers. Um, we, we're no longer living in this world of us versus them. It's not our producers against their producers. It's really competing global supply chains. Uh, and, and the countries that are going to succeed, I think, going forward are those that are most open. Uh, this, that goes for rich countries like ours and developing countries. There need to be fewer, few frictions. Uh, we need to uh, give incentive to business to, to invest in the United States and, and in other countries. But it's really the competition today is a product that you see on an American retail shelf often comprises value from the United States, Mexico, Korea, China, Singapore. And that's reflecting some global supply chain. And that, that supply chain is competing against another supply chain uh, similarly composed. So it's not us versus them. It's, it's, uh, so the, the, the old arguments for protectionism, I think, are, are, are gone. Um, another reason, I think, that we need to, uh, that, that President Obama is interested in pursuing a, a pro-trade agenda is uh, that he wants to repair America's damaged credibility abroad. He wants an internationalist agenda on the foreign policy uh, front. But you can't really do that if you have a unilateralist and provocative trade policy uh, at the same time. Because trade policy, uh, at the end of the day, is really the most significant part of U.S. foreign policy to many countries around the world. So great if, if we want to reach out to uh, uh, President Chavez that's, that, that, that's okay, but you can't do that at the same time that we're leaving President Uribe and the Colombians at the altar over their free trade agreement. Um, if you want to reassure Asians that the United States is going to remain interested in East Asia and East Asian affairs, uh, what better way to do that than to uh, get the South Korea agreement done? Trade policy is, is linked uh, with, with, with foreign policy. Um, how, how are we going to restore the pro-trade con consensus to us the answer lies in, in the incongruence between public opinions about trade uh, and, and the actual impact of trade on Americans. Surveys over the past couple of years have found Americans uh, uh, finding trade falling out of favor for more and more Americans at, at an increasing pace. Uh, Americans believing that trade leads to job losses, lower wages, 
higher prices, economic contraction. Uh, other surveys find Americans believing that there's much more to fear than to embrace about trade. But those opinions, really, if you think about it, are pretty hard to square with every, people's everyday life experiences. About 3% of job loss in the United States is attributable to import competition or outsourcing. Uh, American, most Americans don't even know somebody who's lost a job because of trade. Uh, so uh, the, uh, there's a, it's difficult to reconcile the, the fact international, uh, increasing international trade and investment have been catalysts for economic growth and wealth creation uh, throughout the world during the past quarter century. Uh, as the value of trade increased uh, more than fivefold in real terms, U.S. employers added 46 million jobs to payrolls. Real GDP more than doubled to $14.5 trillion. So America's growing aversion doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There are benefits that we realize every day. Many of us drive to work in cars that are foreign-made foreign or, or have some foreign components. We speak on foreign-owned telephones. For, I'm sorry, foreign-manufactured telephones. Some of us work for foreign-owned companies who invest in the United States. Um, our, 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 our paychecks are supported uh, by trade. Some of us shop at Walmart and other box retailers, which, which are the agents of trade. These, these, these companies actually, they actualize trade for us. So th there are many more reasons to celebrate trade on a daily basis that it's hard to understand why people are, are so opposed to it. We think that the opposition to trade uh, is a top-down process. America's souring on trade over the past few years is the product of a top-down process. Um, and it's, it's, it comes from the perpetuation of three myths. And the first myth is that U.S. manufacturing is in decline. Uh, the second is that the trade account, our trade account is a scoreboard. And the third is that we don't enforce our trade agreements. And our failure to enforce trade agreements explains uh, myth one and two. So the key to restoring the pro-trade consensus is to correct these myths, is to break through and, 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 and make people listen. Uh, carry a good message forward. And I think that if President Obama were to, uh, to, uh, to, to take up this role, we would make a lot more progress uh, than we have over the, over the recent years. Um, why would the, the Obama administration want to do this? Um, examples have already been mentioned. Uh, but the president, you know, he takes a much broader view of trade policy than does a campaigner uh, or a senator for that, for that matter. Uh, the president has to sort of live with uh, the consequences of, uh, of, of his actions at a national level. So the, uh, I think it would be cynical for, us to, for the president to pursue trade liberalization without first addressing the skepticism that exists out there. Recently I was at an event, I was in the audience, and a, a former Clinton and Carter administration official was speaking. And he said, Americans have soured on trade because they think it leads to job loss and environmental degradation, and there's a lot of unfairness about it. He goes, but we really need to get that Doha round back on track. And, you know, I just couldn't understand why, why do we want to pursue it this way? Uh, why not convince Americans first that trade is, is beneficial rather than pursue the same, the same thing we've been doing for, for, for many, many years where we rationalize the benefits of trade? Um, so to burst the myths, we need to talk about the fact that manufacturing is not in decline. You know, the only th statistic that seems to matter is jobs. Uh, look, jobs are important, but jobs in manufacturing peaked in 1979, and they've been, uh, we've, be we've, we've been getting more efficient uh, year after year. But uh, year after year, manufacturing has been breaking new records in the United States. I'm going to spare you all the statistics that I have here, but I'd like to refer you to a paper that we did a couple years ago called uh, uh, 
thriving in a global economy, which has a lot of the statistics about how manufacturing is doing, uh, doing well. Right now we're in a recession, of course, but people complain about, well, every time I go to the hardware store or to the wall, uh, to, uh, retail store, I don't see anything made in America. And that's possibly true because American manufacturing has moved up the value chain. We're not making baseball bats and hammers and clothes anymore. All right? We're making technical textiles, high-tech componentry, pharmaceuticals, chemicals, things that are consumed uh, that aren't purchased off the retail shelves necessarily. Um, so uh, there are a lot of statistics about wh wh why manufacturing. One, let me give you one, one, one of these many statistics and then move on. Uh, people say that the Chinese are eating our lunch in manufacturing. Well, it's really not true. I mean, if we measured trade by its weight, uh, yeah, the Chinese might be winning. They're making heavier things. But by value, we are doing much better than the Chinese. In fact, U.S. manufacturers account for 25% of the world's manufacturing value added. Uh, the Chinese account for about 11%. So for every dollar coming out of Chinese factories, about $2.50 are coming out of American factories. The, the, the trade deficit myth, this myth where exports are good, imports are bad, and the trade account is a scoreboard, that needs to be burst. Trade, uh, the trade account is not a function of trade policy. All right? It's a function of, of disparate patterns of consumption and savings, a fu function of monetary policy and fiscal policy. Uh, the idea that we should pursue balanced trade as a, as a policy matter, I think, is, is, is not, a, not a good one. Um, you know, look, the, the, the Japanese have had trade surpluses for a long, long time and anemic growth for the past 15, 20 years. Um, the, uh, an even more uh, absurd assertion is that we have this bilateral trade deficit with China, so we're losing at trade with China. <coughs> Trade statistics don't, are, are kind of meaningless. Think about it this way. Uh, about 35 to 50 percent of the value of imports from China is Chinese value added. Half to two-thirds is value added from other countries. So even though we import in, in, at Long Beach uh, you know, a, a container worth uh, you know, $100 million, uh, that container is registered as a Chinese import. But in fact, 250, uh, uh, what's the number I'm looking for, 2.5 million to, to, to 5 million of that, I forget, what, I forget what number I started with, 10 million, <laughs> you know, 25 to uh, uh, one-third to one-half of that is Chinese value added. Uh, so bilateral trade accounting doesn't, doesn't matter much. Uh, there, I've got more data here also in that paper I, that I referred, referred you to. I talk about that as well. Let me just end with a couple of last points. The fact that we don't enforce trade agreements, that's not true. Uh, we're enforcing trade agreements every day. Uh, it's just not banging your trade partner on the head with, with a sledgehammer. It's not the kind of enforcement that some people like to, li like to get a lot of press over. Uh, diplomats, when, when an issue arises at USTR or the State Department or somewhere else, I think uh, some issues are resolved at, at cocktail parties, some issues over tea. Uh, some don't rise to the level of being a WTO dispute. Uh, so lots of uh, enforcement is happening. Uh, plenty of enforcement has happened uh, under, under the Bush administration. I think critics have, have said, you know, under the Clinton administration, there were eight, something like 88 WTO cases brought. Under the, under the Bush administration, there were only 22. I don't think it's a very com fair comparison. I mean, the Clinton administration negotiated the end of the Uruguay round. They knew where all the low-hanging fruit was. In the first few years, there were a lot of cases where the U.S. knew what they were going after uh, and succeeded, and other countries uh, took note of those decisions and, and changed their policies. Um, so there have been so uh, so I don't think that that drop off from 88 to 22 reflects a failure to enforce. Besides, and there have been plenty of uh, there were more anti-dumping cases brought under the Bush administration than under the Clinton administration, 
point is, enforcement is not all about bringing these high-profile uh, matters uh, to a dispute settlement body. Um, I think I'm about to run out of time, so let me let me just say that you know we we, we end our paper with some uh, recommendations for the president, and one of the recommendations is that uh, we, be, we be transparent about trade, that we we. The U.S. International Trade Commission does a lot of research. We should allow that research to, to make it into the public arena uh, without uh, political interference. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a big study that was uh, commissioned, uh, where the, it was commissioned by Chairman Rangel, and they asked, asking for documentation of Chinese subsidy programs and other programs that, that could have an impact on giving an advantage, for example, to Chinese exporters. And the second part of that study was to look at the impact on the bilateral trade account. Well, the first part of the study came out, and the ITC did a good job of documenting these programs. Then the second part of the study uh, was terminated after a draft came out. And I think there's been a lot of speculation that perhaps it was terminated because it was, you know, we're going into an election and there was a lot of speculation that it didn't draw that, that linkage between Chinese export practices and, and the state of the U.S. economy. We need greater transparency. Uh, so anyway, I think that this president uh, is surprisingly to many people very interested in pursuing a uh, pro-trade agenda. We have members of Congress who are uh, also leading the charge, and we're about to hear from one of them. So I think things are a lot better than we expected they were going to be just, just a few months ago. And I will now yield the, the podium to somebody who's going to tell us about that. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Our uh, next speaker today is Congressman Henry Coyar, who is a Democrat from Laredo, Texas. As many of you probably know, Laredo is the busiest border crossing for uh, U.S.-Mexico trade, and it has oodles and noodles of uh, trucks and rail cars going over it on a daily basis. Um, this is Congressman Coyar's third term in Congress, and uh, he was sent back here with 69% of the vote uh, in November. He currently serves on the Agriculture, Homeland Security, and Oversight and Government Reform Committees, and he is the founder of the Congressional Pro-Trade Caucus, uh, where he has been a consistent supporter for removing all sorts of trade barriers. Um, in terms of education, um, if I may say so, you must be one of the most educated members of Congress. He has five degrees, um, an associate's from Laredo Community College, a bachelor's from Georgetown, a master's in international trade from Texas A&M International University, and a Ph.D. in government and a law degree from the University of Texas at Austin. Um, in terms of career, he opened his own law firm in 1981, became a licensed custom broker in 1983, um, returned as an adjunct professor for international commercial law to Texas A&M International University, and then became a state representative in Texas in 1987, where he was uh, the co-author of significant health and tax reforms and served on a variety of legislative committees dealing with state budgets, the U.S.-Mexico border, and international trade. He was appointed to Texas Secretary of State in 2001 by a Republican governor, and in 2005 he was elected to the 28th District of Texas, and uh, he has been a leader on trade issues, as we're about to hear, and uh, a strong supporter of the Central American Free Trade Agreement, as well as the North American Free Trade Agreement, and all of the benefits it brings us. Congressman Coyer. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, 
Thank you uh, very much. Uh, thank you for your kind introduction, and Dan, I appreciate the, uh, the work that uh, you and, and the other folks did, and appreciate the work that Cato does. I, um, as it was mentioned, I come from Laredo. Laredo is the, uh, probably the largest inland port. I think it's uh, L.A., uh, New York, Detroit, and almost tied for Detroit, and third place, and fourth place is Laredo. We actually get about 13,500 trucks, trailers, a day. Uh, so you can imagine the trade that we see there, and trade is uh, extremely important to, to us and the border. In fact, Laredo probably, well, Laredo for sure in, uh, uh, along the border has the lowest unemployment rate, and a lot of it is because of the trade, whether it's transportation, warehouse and freight forwarder, custom broker, uh, the different, uh, both direct and indirect, the trade that's created there, uh, I mean, the jobs are created there uh, because of trade. I, I have to... Um, uh, start off with a quote uh, that uh, Sir Winston Churchill uh, said, and um, of course some of the terms that are used at that time, they, they might be a little bit modified when we talk about free trader. So, you know, there's not a pure free trader now. There's uh, uh, you know, new conditions that we've added on labor and environmental, but uh, it's still a pro-trade. But uh, Sir Winston said, it is the theory of the protectionist that imports are evil. He thinks that if you shut down the foreign imported manufactured goods, you will make these goods yourself. Uh, in addition to the goods which you make now, uh, including the goods which uh, we make in order to exchange for the foreign goods uh, that come in. Uh, of course, he goes on and says, you know, free traders uh, disagree with that. Uh, to think that you can make a man richer by putting a tax is like a man uh, thinking that he can stand uh, in, a bu- in a bucket and live himself by the handles. Uh, if anybody tried that, uh, I think that's pretty hard to do. Uh, but I, I start off with that because uh, when we talk about trade, and even if you go back in the old days, uh, other civilizations, uh, the countries that have always done well, at least my review of that, uh, are the countries that have uh, had uh, trade in one way or the other. Those are the countries that have done well, and, and you know, we know uh, that in history there's uh, countries that have done extremely well in that area. You know, we're now in a, in a new era. Uh, and, and there is some politics involved, but I still feel that there are certain issues that you cannot do that by just the Democrats or just the Republicans. There are certain issues that you got to have a bipartisan approach, a consensus. Uh, certainly trade is one of them. Uh, I can name other ones like immigration uh, is another one that you got to have a bipartisan approach because anybody that feels that the Republicans and, you know, with all due respect to my Republican friends some years ago, they thought they could just ram that through didn't work. Uh, Same thing now uh, with the Democrats. If they feel that they can stop uh, the trade uh, policies from coming in, it it doesn't work. It's got to be a bipartisan approach, and it's important. Uh, I'll give you my perspective, uh, and I'll give you, I think I was the first Democrat to come out in in favor of CAFTA. uh, And uh, and I say that because, as you know, it was a very contentious uh, type of issue when it came up at that time. Uh, but one of the things that I, I, I saw at that time was I saw the dynamics. I was not, I was a freshman at that time, so I was not involved in the leadership between, you know, the, the, the Democrats and minority at that time and, of course, uh, President Bush at that time. But I saw some glimpses that I think should have been improved. For example, I remember being at the White House and the president was there with some of the uh, uh, Democratic leadership saying, hey, you got to come on board. It's important to have this, to do this. The Democrats at that time said, uh, Mr. President, you did not include us in the process. You did not include us in the process, and now you're asking us to sign on and just vote on it when you did not include us and give us any sort of input uh, in that. 
I, uh, you know, when John Tanner, a couple of us met with uh, Ron Kirk, uh, we, uh, my advice to Ron Kirk was the same thing to them, uh, to Ron Kirk and to the administration is, I hope you don't do the same, I call it mistake, uh, without respect to uh, President Bush, uh, you know, don't do the same thing that happened with the prior administration. Uh, don't get caught up where you work out everything and then come up to the Republicans and say, hey, uh, sign on to this bill. I, I told uh, Ron Kirk, and I've known Ron Kirk, we always kid around. Uh, he was the Secretary of State, I was the Secretary of State, and if I see him first, I always say, you're the third best Secretary of State, and I was the second best. Uh, Austin, uh, anybody from Texas here? Uh, anyway, you know, I've seen if Austin was the first Secretary of State, so he was number one, I was number two, number three, but, you know, I told him, hey, get some of the trade agreement, and you can be number two, and I'll take number three if you can get some of the trade agreements. Um, and I say that, I said that to, to, uh, to Ron Kirk, because I don't want that same mistake where, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the administration in power will make all the decisions, and they come up to the minority and say, you know, just get on board and vote on it. And I told him it was very, very important that we get this bipartisan uh, from the very beginning. And this is why the pro-caucus, uh, 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 pro-trade caucus that we started, both Democrats and Republicans, a uh, small group that will expand, uh, I told him, hey, come and talk to us, uh, because I think it's important to make sure that we get uh, the minority involved, because I don't want to see the same mistake that we saw uh, from, the, uh, you know, from another time. And I say this because... You know, whether it's immigration or whether it's trade, if you're going to make – if you can get it done, you've got to develop some sort of consensus. You won't get the, the fringes on both sides. Uh, the fringes on the left, the fringes on the right, you might not be able to get them on board. But I think more of the folks that are willing to get together, work a consensus, uh, can be worked out. Uh, you know, my personal opinion, if I can tell you a little bit about Ron Kirk, when I saw that the president appointed Ron Kirk, I told myself, this is good news. It really is good news uh, because I've known Ron Kirk for a long time, and I think if the president wanted to go another direction, he would have appointed somebody that would have taken a very different approach. Uh, knowing Ron Kirk and the work that he did there when he was mayor of, of the city of, uh, of Dallas and, you know, being from Texas, I understand the work that he's done. And I think he, uh, you know, he will be a good spokesperson. Uh, we met with him recently and, uh, you know, talked to you know, we talked to him about Panama, we talked to him about Colombia, uh, South Korea, and he gave us a, a, a kind of a schedule. Uh, we know that I was hoping we would have done this um, uh, before, uh, at least Panama, before the uh, August break. Uh, but there's a couple of issues that have, you know, are going to be there. Uh, a little climate warming, a little bit uh, health care. Uh, but we're hoping that uh, later on uh, the, this year we will go ahead and at least take up Panama uh, to do that. And hopefully uh, Colombia will come after that. Uh, I have visited uh, both South Korea. I have visited uh, Panama. I've been to Colombia several times. Uh, Peru also, and of course, Peru's done already. Mexico, of course. And if you look at it, uh, it it's 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 a win-win situation, uh, and and it's a win-win situation. Let me give you a couple of numbers, and I think you're familiar with it. Uh, for the U.S.-Colombia free trade agreement, uh, U.S. exports are expected to increase by at least 1.1 billion dollars uh, in this FTA. Um, usually when you hear some of the arguments, they think that it's the big multi-corporations that are going to be the big winners. But if you look at the numbers of the companies that are involved, a lot of them are the small, medium-sized firms, what they call the SMEs. Uh, in fact, there's 10,000 U.S. companies that export to Colombia. 8,500 of them are the small, medium-sized companies. So as you know, a lot of the jobs that are created 
are created by the uh, by small business. So therefore, this will be a, a, a big winner. Uh, the U.S. GDP uh, is expected to increase by approximately $2.5 billion, uh, which is good. And if you look at it, to me, when I talk about those countries, it's a no-brainer. And, uh, and, and, and Ron and I, when we were talking about this, it's, it's a no-brainer. And I'm using my term, not Ron's. But it's a, new, a no-brainer. Look at this. You know, a lot of those countries, you know, since the 1980s, they've had, uh, they've been able to send their goods into the U.S. duty-free. And, and we did it for political reasons to help those countries uh, because of what was happening in the 1980s and, and a little bit after that. So if those countries are sending their goods over to the U.S. duty-free, what we're trying to do in, 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 by this free trade agreement is to send our goods to them uh, duty-free. Why is it, for example, in Colombia, let me use it as an example, that they import flowers or export flowers over to us, but the fertilizer that we send over to them, they come in duty-free, but then the, the fertilizer that we send over to them, we have to pay a, a duty. Uh, so all we're doing is trying to make this a, a, a plain, uh, even playing field. We're the ones that, that will come out. And on top of that, of course, the foreign investment will be good for America, and it'll be good for them. And who is it, uh, you know, I've always said that as you do the free, uh, free trade agreements, you, you're engaged. You know, that is, you're talking and you have a dialogue. If you don't want to have an, an engagement, don't talk to them. But if you want to continue talking to them, a trade agreement is one mechanism that's available out there uh, to be able to, uh, to talk to them. And for anybody that feels that if we don't en- enter into, an, uh, into a free trade agreement with those one, uh, countries, that the world is going to stand still. It's not. Other countries will come in. Uh, Canada and other countries will come in, and other countries will continue uh, entering the free trade agreements. Uh, and if you want to talk about values, well... Uh, the rule of law and, and, and other uh, concepts are important to us. This is one way that we can go ahead and do that uh, and, 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 and push for those uh, values that are important. And finally, for the folks that believe that the environmental and labor laws are important, what better way but to have a good, well-drafted agreement that you can put labor and environmental and put them as part of an agreement and therefore be able to have a say-so? Because if you don't enter it, how do you have that say-so uh, to do that. Finally, the last thing is this, uh, what I call the big papa or mama. Who is it, uh, why, why should we know what's better for those countries when it comes to certain, uh, um, whether it's uh, labor or whether it's uh, environmental, whatever the issue might be, who, who is it that we know better than those countries, their own elected officials, to know what's better for them? If you have President Uribe uh, that says, hey, this will be good for us, uh, who are we to say, no, it's not? Or who, are, who is it that, uh, uh, you know, that we know that's better for Panama for, or for any other countries? And therefore, we ought to at least pr- provide them the respect and dignity that they know what's better for them in their countries than for us to come in as a big papa, the big mama, saying, oh, we know what's better for you uh, on that. So, you know, that is, uh, I don't know how you classify that as the papa, the big mama theory, but uh, it's just one of the things that I feel that we ought to uh, give those countries the respect that they know uh, what's in the best interest in in those countries. And certainly if you want to look at some of the uh, 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 pro-American countries, you know, go to Peru. Uh, go to Panama, uh, go to Colombia, and you're talking about countries that are very, very, if you look at some of the surveys and polls, it shows that they're, you know, very uh, pro-American. Uh, you know, you look at a place like Panama, you know, here's Panama, 
you know, we uh, had a huge investment there called the uh, the, the Panama Canal. Uh, you know, so why not be able to to you know continue that dialogue? That's so important. Uh, Panama, for example, uh, the, the it's valued at 5.25 billion dollars, uh, which is a historic opportunity for uh, for U.S. companies. And again, it would level the uh, uh, playing uh, fields. Uh, and, and also, you know, if they want to compete for the Canada projects, as you know. Panama is in the process of expanding uh, its uh, its uh, canal, so you know this will also provide uh, incentives uh, for for us to go down there. Uh, the um, there's about six thousand four hundred U.S. companies that export to uh, Panama. Five thousand two hundred of them are small medium companies. So again, the majority of them are the big companies that I mean the small companies that uh, were a lot of these jobs. Same thing with uh, U.S. Uh, Korea. Uh, free trade agreements, you know, U.S. exports are expected to increase by uh, 10.3. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting, if you look at some of the numbers, you know, where we're going through this economic situation, uh, the, the, the areas that were doing well were the exports. I know that they've gone down, but for a while they were the ones that were, you know, helping our economy through, during this uh, very difficult uh, times. Uh, and, and this is, again, a very important. For example, in the first eight years of 2008, exports of goods and services grew by 18% to $1.3 trillion uh, that, that you have. If you look at the 14 free trade agreements that we have, the free trade agreements that we have right now are U.S., because we always talk about that trade deficit, but the United States has a $10.3 billion trade surplus uh, with those free trade agreement uh, partners that we have. So FTAs uh, uh, do work. Uh, U.S. manufactured goods, because the manufactured goods are, are always an issue. Uh, the uh, U.S. manufactured goods trade uh, balance improved about 158%. Uh, with those uh, free trade agreement partners that we have, uh, compared to only a 7% increase of the non-FDA partners in the first eight months of, uh, of, uh, of 2008. So you can see how, how you know, this happens. And if you want to talk about trade agreements, I mean, uh, the U.S. trade deficit, about 59% of that is due to petroleum imports uh, on that. So if you take out the petroleum trade imports, you can see uh, a very different uh, different type of pictures. If you look at the statement that Ron Kirk gave uh, to the um, uh, co- uh, U.S. Um, uh, Senate Committee on Finance, you can see, look at, if you haven't looked at uh, his statement, uh, look at his statement and you see a very promising um, uh, statement coming in uh, from uh, the administration, from Ron Kirk on behalf of the administration. I would ask you to look at that because that is something that's very important. And I, I, I think uh, us, well, like other folks, you know, during the primaries, and primaries are primaries, whether it's a Republican or the Democratic, and certain things are said. And I remember when President Obama came out and said, oh, you know, we're going to reopen um, uh, NAFTA and, and make those changes. It did worry me because, you know, certainly being from the border, and we've seen that the border trade has transformed the U.S.-Mexico border. I've seen this transformation. So, it, of course, it worried a, a lot of the business people. Uh, you know, my advice to, you know, to, to some of his folks was, you know, maybe do an add-on, you know, on labor and environmental, but don't reopen the whole thing because if something's broken, uh, it's not broken, then why try to fix it? You know, you can do add-ons uh, instead of, you know, trying to open up this process. But as time went on, then we started seeing, you know, once President Obama took office and we started seeing the statements and who he appointed uh, for U.S. trade representatives, I feel that there is um, uh, a promising hope uh, for trade agreements. You know, they'll be different. 
from certainly different from in the past, but I think if we find that balance, and I think Ron Kirk, Trent was saying we got to find it, you know, do those trade agreements uh, uh, where there's a connection to our domestic agenda, uh, then uh, then I think we can get it done. So I'm hoping that be, uh, before the end of the year we'll have the Panama uh, agreement, and certainly Colombia's important, South Korea, and certainly, you know, of course, you know, issues with China and other uh, areas we have to certainly look at. But uh, I feel very, very uh, good about uh, President Obama and the statements that he's made. And uh, to all my Democrats, I think we might have a few Democrats here also. I've always said for the Democratic Party, it would be a mistake to turn our backs to trade. It would be a mistake for the Democratic Party uh, to turn its back uh, back uh, to, to trade. Now, I'm not saying this is a, a Democrat agenda or a Republican agenda. It's, I'll end up with this part. Uh, you have to do it in a buy partisan way, and you got to include the minority from the beginning and not say, by the way, here it is, vote on it, and, and we'll try to run over you. It's not going to work. It's got to be from the beginning, the bipartisan uh, approach. Uh, for any staffers who are here, uh, if your uh, boss hasn't joined the pro-trade caucus, I ask you to go ahead and uh, uh, we got uh, uh, Alistair here, my legislative director. Please talk to him uh, about the, uh, the pro-trade caucus on that. We got both Democrats and Republicans uh, on that. So uh, I want to say thank you very much to Cato, Dan, and all the folks that have been working very hard. Uh, we'll be happy. I, I was telling Dan that I'll take the easy questions. He'll take all the hard questions. So thank you very much for being here with us.